I cannot tell you the blessing it has been for me, the blessing, the reproof, the joy, the regret that studying for these messages have brought to my soul. I want to thank again all those who urged me to do this for the Lord's Day as opposed to Wednesdays. And uh, my time for the Lord's Day in study is significantly longer than it normally is for Wednesdays. And it has been um, a very great recent blessing to meditate on both the goodness and severity of God in this subject. If uh, I, I say to you without hesitation, if you want to sum up uh, the revelation set forth in God's word, it is, behold his goodness and severity. Many don't like the idea of the severity, but it is there. We cannot think of a day of judgment without that severity. And yet, for those who are his children, they can look to that day because of his goodness. They can look at it with great joy and with the greatest anticipation. So, we're going to return to Acts 20 today. If you would stand with me, we're going to start reading in verse 17. And we will read through verse 38. Brethren, this is God's word. You may forget all mine, but don't forget his. And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews, and how I kept back Nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. And the ministry which... 
I've received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that ye all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shown to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, you yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore. And fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. Sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake. That they should see his face no more. And they accompanied him under the ship. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us remain standing. Is it not a precious thought that God the Father looks down upon us with grace and love because Christ sits right next to him? That he can look at his people here and delight in them because of all that Christ has done for them. May our hearts delight in our Savior. Let's pray. Oh, Savior, blessed Savior. Whom yet unseen we love. Thou hast gathered us 
today. Thou didst shed thy blood 2,000 years ago to establish thy churches in this sin-cursed world. And that throughout this day, this blessed Lord's day, this blessed resurrection day, thou dost look down with favor, with love, and even reproof upon those that thou hast loved from eternity, that thou dost love now, and that thou wilt love throughout eternity. What a blessing it is to know that God the Son secures our weak and feeble prayers to God the Father. Now, O Lord, Thou seest us. All things are open and naked before the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Thou hast seen us in our struggles to honor thee this week. Thou hast picked us up, cleansed us with the blood of Christ, and we have failed. Thou hast loved us and strengthened us by thy Spirit, and thou wilt grant us persevering grace from day to day. Father, I pray, I know that there are lost ones here. Some of them don't really know how horrifying a statement is that they are lost. They are lost in this world. They will be lost for eternity. Except in thine amazing grace thou dost come and make them see, make them grasp their lostness. Some, O Lord, sent or sit comfortably before thee with a profession that will burn in hell with them. I pray, O righteous Lord, that thou would snatch them as brands from the burning as well. Paul knew what it meant to be religious, but then saved. Nicodemus, we believe, knew what it meant to be religious, but then saved. And some of us here know, even with bitterness, what it was like to be religious. But without Christ, how we praise Thee with joy and thanksgiving that Thou dost save not only the harlot and the whoremonger, but the religious. Wouldst thou come 
with the power of true and saving religion and move in their hearts. It is thou that canst do it. It is we that plead with thee to do it. Now, Lord Jesus, help this vessel of dust to preach thy word for thy glory. I believe in thy Holy Spirit. Be generous with that spirit in our midst. And oh, my Father, may the preaching of thy living word be blessed of thee to the hearts of all those present. I ask it in the name of thy holy Son. Amen. Please be seated. Before I begin this morning, I meant to say this before I prayed, my mind was already running to the sermon, but uh, we do want to remember the Swan family in the loss of Jared's uncle. He passed away and uh, they will be leaving most likely tomorrow to make the trip to Indiana and for the funeral. We want to remember them in prayer. Pray that the Lord would grant them much grace, much comfort, and make them a blessing to the rest of their family. <clears throat> now the prophet Jeremiah lived about 600 years before our precious Savior, Jesus Christ, began his ministry. God said through the mouth of Jeremiah, They that handle the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me. Again, Jeremiah declared, For the pastors are become Brutish, stupid. And have not sought the Lord. Again, woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people. Ye have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, saith the Lord. And again, God lamented, my people hath been 
lost sheep. Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. So God declared his judgment. Howl, ye shepherds, and cry. And wallow yourselves in ashes, ye principled of the flock. Principle there means leaders, lords. For the days of your slaughter and of your dispersions are accomplished. This is judgment upon the religious and the civil leaders of God's people. It is quite ironic. He said the days of your slaughter. We read the scriptures carefully. Slaughter is usually applied to the sheep. God turns the table and says, no, the days of your slaughter are on the way. You don't handle God's word or his people lightly. Nevertheless, in wrath, God remembered mercy. He promised his people, I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. The direct contrast with the shepherds they had. When I look at our culture, I tremble for it. But I tremble the most. I grieve the most for those that call themselves pastors who cannot be distinguished, neither their flocks, from the culture that God is judging. But I thank God that his promise stands firm. He grants pastors according to his heart. And that promise was wonderfully fulfilled in Jesus Christ, his apostles, and the pastor elders of his new covenant flocks. When Jesus came into the world, he saw the multitudes, writes Matthew, and he was moved with compassion on them. Why? Because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. They had shepherds, but they were no shepherds. The Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes were no better than the pastors of Jeremiah's day centuries earlier. After his resurrection, Jesus said to Peter, Feed my sheep. 
Later, as an elder, Peter wrote to fellow elders, Feed the flock of God. And in our text, Paul exhorted the elders of the Ephesian congregation, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. I don't know any more beautiful and terrifying verse about the church of Jesus Christ. How you handle, how you treat Christ's blood-bought people is a serious matter. And even more so for those whom he makes pastors. The flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. Notice, and this will be repeated, churches don't make elders. The Holy Spirit does. And the Spirit-filled temple of God, the church, is to recognize them. Now, if you don't know much about the church, and if you don't know about the qualifications of an elder, you would be safe and wise to have nothing whatsoever to do with the choice of an elder. This, of course, is why we're taking the time to look through these passages with care, because it's very serious business. Many will not agree with me on this, but it's more important than who you vote for for president. <clears throat> so the title of our message is Faithful Shepherds Feed God's Flock. This is part two. And there will be, God willing, a part three. Now may our holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit grant us the sense of His power and presence in our midst. When He does, we will take His word more seriously. We will love his word more intensely and we will desire his son above all things. And may we love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, in brief review, our main heading for several weeks was Paul exhorted the Ephesian elders using Shepherd imagery. <clears throat> we considered that shepherd imagery appears throughout the Old Testament. That shepherd imagery appears throughout the New Testament. 
Then we considered Christ as shepherd, apostles as shepherds, and elders, pastors of congregations as shepherds, which is where we left off last time. That brings us to our second major head, and it's Paul, according to God's heart, exhorted the Ephesian elders. Let me say that again. Don't let that slip by. Paul, according to God's heart, exhorted the Ephesian elders. He was a man prepared by Christ, sent by Christ, empowered by Christ, and now he's talking to a group of elders. As we pointed out, Christ, and we'll talk more about that today, Christ is the head of the church. All authority for the church rests in him and his word. Rests in him and his word. That's the final authority for everything. Christ passed that on to his very faulty apostles. He took that sacred truth and made it a sacred trust. Remember, to those men that ran away from him. And they were to pass on the truth after God's heart to the elders of the congregation. Let me be clear. The apostles lived during their time. They were hand-picked by Christ, empowered by Christ. They were eyewitnesses of Christ. We don't have apostles like that anymore. They passed the truth and the responsibility, the keys of the kingdom, to the apostles. And the apostles who had seen the Lord Jesus, who had a special ministry, oversaw churches and passed the truth along. They helped to establish churches. But what we find is apostles appointing elders, pastors, shepherds in local congregations. That's how it works. Christ, the apostles, the elders. The elders are not perfect, even as the apostles were not perfect, and they will never be perfect in this world. I am, however, looking forward to my perfection. Now, with that in mind, before us is Paul's exhortation to the Ephesian elders. Before us is an authentic, heartfelt counsel. This wasn't just rattling off a few things on the elder list. 
This was a man who knew that he was about to suffer greatly. That he wasn't far from the end of his life. And now he's saying goodbye to men that he loves. And I'm going to tell you what. A true elder loves other elders and appreciates them. Unfortunately, the eldership in many churches just turns into a battle of pride and ego. Paul knows he's at the end of his course and he's urging these men. He, this is heartfelt counsel. So may the Lord help us grasp the context for Paul's exhortation to feed the flock. That's what we're focusing on. I'd love to take every single verse in this, but that's beyond the scope of what we're attempting to do. But we want a bird's eye view of the context in which the command to feed the flock rests. So may the Lord help us to grasp Paul's exhortation to feed the flock of God, the blood-bought property of God. Along the way, let us note some characteristics of shepherds according to God's heart. First, Paul summoned the Ephesian elders and exhorted them. In verses 17 through 21, we read that Paul was in Miletus, an ancient Greek city in Asia Minor. It was in the southwest coast of what we call Turkey today. From there, he summoned the Ephesian elders to join him. When they came to him, he set his own ministry before them as an example. That is significant. As a true father in the faith, so to speak, he's saying, okay, you knew me, you watched me, learn from that. Not many men can say that. But Paul could. From his first day in Asia, Paul had served the Lord and his people with humility and tears. Humility and tears. He wasn't a, a celebrity preacher uh, looking at sermon audio to see how many downloads he got last week. He had endured many trials from the plots of the Jews. To be faithful to God's people generally will not win you a popularity contest. People, everyone that professes to be a Christian say, oh yeah, we love the truth. But when you start pressing the truth home, you get gripes. You get people that drop out of the church and go find a nicer place. Paul had endured so much. He could say, look at my body. Look at, at all the scars that the ministry of Christ have brought me. He saw them like medals, like badges because of his love for Christ. 
He didn't complain about them. He gives you the list of all that he struggled with. I mean, how many of us just once could be stoned and get up afterwards and go back into the city? I mean, if we lived through it, we'd say, please drag me to another city as soon as possible and find a doctor when you get there. No, the Lord raised him up and he went right back into the city. His life was manifest in the brokenness of his body. The weariness, the tiredness, the emotional toll of serving Jesus. Praise the Lord. As Christ's life was open for all to observe, every minister should live in that way. Open. Not a hermit. Not hiding from everybody. But under the glass all the time. So that they know you're not just words. A minister's life should be an open book. One thing should be obvious. He humbly serves the Lord's people. This is what Paul is conveying to the elders. I served you in humility and tears. Paul also said that he taught the Ephesians publicly and from house to house. And he held nothing back that would be profitable to them. An elder then should be gifted to preach and teach. And he should use every opportunity to do so. Paul finally said that he testified to Jews and Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul faithfully preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to all manner of people. So should every pastor after God's heart. Secondly, Paul told, or Paul warned them about future events. In verses 22 through 27, the apostle spoke of what would happen to him in the future. The Holy Spirit had warned him that imprisonment and afflictions awaited him. But that did not stop him. He did not count his life dear to him. We hear that. He didn't count his life dear to him. Because he loved Christ and because he loved God's people. It didn't matter to him ultimately what happened to him as he served Christ. Because it was all for the glory of the Savior and for the salvation of his elect. Paul wanted to finish his course joyfully. And that came with bruises and bloodshed. And that came with his, his, uh, his character, his apostleship being questioned. People talking behind his back. 
talking about him, talking about this or that or the other. He didn't care. Because he faithfully served Christ and his people. That's what it was for. And that's why he could finish that long and hard ministry with joy. Not because you necessarily feel great. But because you know you've finished what the Lord has given you to do. You can say, I didn't run. I didn't hide. When you spoke to me, oh Christ. And you showed me hard things to say to thy people. I didn't budge. I said those hard things. And when you showed me the glory and the beauty and the sweetness, the loveliness of thy grace and thy gospel, I told him that. I poured that into everything that we did. He wanted to finish that ministry of preaching God's gospel of grace. By grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Some of our very favorite Bible verses, I'm sure it's true at least of some of you, if not all of you, come right from the pen of Paul who understood the glories of grace. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared. If we could just, the list is almost endless. Everything, even when, even when he's saying things like, all right, take that man who's committing incest in your congregation. You know it's been going on. You knew it was there. Put him out. My spirit's with you. Put him out. But he goes on to speak to them. Grace and mercy, goodness and severity. Paul was faithful to the word of God. It should be obvious that an elder is a man who sacrificially then gives himself to the Lord and to his people, the Lord's people. It was the character of Christ, the character of Paul and the other apostles. It should be the character of a pastor according to God's heart. Paul reminded the elders that he had been among them preaching the kingdom of God. Living at a time when Christians were being persecuted. It didn't look like the kingdom of God was close. But he went about preaching that glorious kingdom. He knew it. He was in it. But he knew there was coming a glorious day of consummation. That's why we preach the gospel. To bring people into the kingdom of God. In this world. And for the glories of the world to come. Paul reminded the elders that he had been among them preaching the kingdom of God, but now they would never see him again. So, he declared 
that he was pure from the blood of all men. He said, I've been among you. I've preached the truth to you. But now I'm going to hold you accountable to something. You've watched my life. I'm going to tell you now. I am innocent of everybody's blood here. Why? Because he told them the truth. And he didn't hold back anything that they needed to hear. He never shrank from preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God. In other words, he taught God's word whatever it cost him. Thirdly, Paul then exhorted the elders to feed God's people. Verses 28 through 31, Paul exhorted the elders, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. A pastor must be attentive to the flock. That's clear here. He must be vigilant and protective. You know what? A lot of sheep don't want to be protected. Get out of my grace. But the shepherd doesn't say, okay. He tells them the truth. And they love him for it. Or they don't. Pastor must be attentive to the flock. He must be vigilant. He must be protective. And he must warn the sheep when they're in danger. Whether they realize they're in danger or not. And I'm telling you, even at this moment, we are entering dark days. God's put it on the heart. One of the brothers in this congregation to teach uh, to preach us two messages on waking up. Why do you think he's doing that? Why do you think he's warning you? Why do you think this pulpit regularly warns you? Wake up and look at the world you are in. And realize that if you faithfully walk with Christ, it's going to cost you. We need to be ready. We need to be ready. Oh, my dear people of God. Paul knew that things were coming to the churches. He said, look, false shepherds are coming. They're coming. And when you read his letters, it's obvious that they came. And they've come in every generation. They fill the internet and the airwaves and the television False doctrine in God's people, many of God's sheep, sit and listen to one heresy after another and go, I went out, praise the Lord. Wake up. Paul said, there's one gospel. You need to make sure you know that gospel. And there's a way to live. Stop looking for the easiest way to live because Jesus has already told you what it's going to be. Under a cross. There is no Christianity. There is no following Christ. Without being a cross bearer. 
I'm not making that up. Jesus said, no man can be my disciple who doesn't take up his cross and follow me. Paul knew that grievous wolves would not spare Christ's blood-bought flock. They would distort the truth to draw disciples after them. Everybody wants their little following. Everybody wants their 15 minutes of the praise of men. It's just air. That's all the praise of men is. It's quite the dope experience, but it lasts and hell will burn every vestige of it out of you. Paul had warned these people for three years with tears. Was he a weakling? Was he just a sappy, feminized man? He wept because he loved Christ, Christ's gospel, and Christ's people. He loved them. He loved them. And he was willing to experience whatever he had to experience to go right on with what the Lord gave him. And this is what he's telling the elders at Ephesus, of Ephesus. It should be obvious then that a pastor after God's heart should be deeply concerned about the spiritual condition of Christ's sheep. Not whether there's enough people in the congregation to make his paycheck. The Lord will sustain his preachers. He's got to be concerned about the spiritual condition of God's people. Those are things that you lose sleep over. It should also be obvious that every pastor should be passionate about what God has given him to do. If gospel ministry is not the most important thing on the planet then you don't need to be passionate about it but if men's souls lying in the flames of hell doesn't matter to you then actually the, the ministry itself is not an important thing it's known among many pastors that there are people that want the pastorate just because they can't do anything else. Guys that can't do anything else end up being shepherds for God's people. It happens. And they're not shepherds after God's own heart. Because you won't find the qualifications of an elder in them. Paul agonized over the Ephesians and, and over the other churches. That's important. Fourthly, Paul commended them to God's grace, warned them of covetousness, and bid them farewell. After that troubling warning, we have verses 32 through 38. 
Paul commended the elders to God and the word of his grace. The word of his grace. That alone would build them up. They needed to know that. And every pastor, according to God's heart, must be confident. As confident as a human being can be in God's purpose, Christ's work, and the Spirit's empowerment for their ministry. He needs to be very convinced about that. All of those things are of God's grace. His ministry is rooted in grace because God saved him by his grace. And he knows that he is to preach that grace to God's people. You are not saved by your works. You haven't been saved by your works. You will not, by your works, keep yourself saved. And when you get to heaven, the Lord will not say, Well, my son's blood and a handful of your works are why you're here. It will be one thing. We will stand there and say, Christ did it all. He did it for me. We must encourage God's people. We must exhort them to walk in holiness. When you take the little book of Titus, just three chapters, go there and read how often Paul talks about good works. But not one of them will save you. They're evidences that God has saved you. If they're not there, then there's something wrong with that picture. The grace of God alone sanctifies God's people. And that grace is a fruitful grace. Well, Paul encouraged them to cultivate a proper attitude toward material things. We won't spend too much time on that. But that's a very important important aspect of a Christian, a pastor after God's own heart. Man, if he's talking about money all the time, something's generally not right. Now, I'm not talking about a George Whitfield who stands and preaches with the glorious unction of God and then says, now give to the orphans. Not talking about that. Talking about money for him. Every elder must have Christ, Jesus Christ, as his greatest treasure. That that's his wealth. That's, that's his eternal bank account. The never-ending grace of God. The perfect work of Christ. Where your treasure is, friends, there will your heart also it ought to be clear if a man is called of God to preach his word that he's about Christ not just money they have to eat to live no doubt Paul says that pastors should be supported by those who profit from their preaching but if not they'll do what Paul does or what Paul did he'll just go make tents 
Because he's going to preach. Christ has told him to. Not by audible words, but by the word and the things that he works in their lives. Now, following this stunning farewell uh, speech, Paul fell to his knees and prayed with them all. As we will see, along with preaching the word, prayer must be central in the life of every pastor after God's heart. He loved these men. And what was his farewell to them? Uniting their hearts together in prayer before their Savior. How can a man preach that is not familiar with the object of his preaching? So as the elders bid Paul farewell, these grown men cried loudly. They cried and they cried loudly. They embraced him. They kissed him. And what grieved them the most was that they would see him no more. Now, you think it was because they were fishing buddies? Man, you know, a night in the deer stand with Paul, that's just tremendous. Is that, is that why they're weeping? I'm going to tell you what, Paul and I, man, we're Green Bay fans, we're Yankee fans or whatever. Man, I'm going to miss him. That's not what's going on. These men had come out of darkness. And now they were overseeing God's flock. They had seen a man that gave himself for God's people. And they loved him. Because he was among the, they were among those who had prospered, who had been edified by his telling them the whole counsel of God. When you have people like that in your life, to lose them, is a significant loss. And Conrad Murrow passed away. And I stood over his open casket. I could hear that central Louisiana accent in his words. I'd never heard anyone preach such a big God as Conrad. The ministry that he held in my life made his passing a very serious loss to me. I can only imagine what the Ephesians thought of Paul. Well, Paul commanded the Ephesian shepherds to feed God's blood-bought flock. I've got to get moving here. Now let's hear 
Luke's spirit wrought text one more time. Paul said, take heed. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. To take heed means to pay careful attention. Our parents know something about this. There have been times when they looked at their children and said, Are you listening? I want you to pay attention to me right now. Do I have your attention? If that's never happened in your house, please come and talk to me. I want to hear how that happened. Either you're a miracle or you're shirking your work. Paul says to these men, I want you to be serious and pay careful attention to yourself. What? He says, take care about yourself and the flock. He didn't put the flock first. Why? Because they're going to be leading that flock. And they have a target on their back. And Satan is aiming at them. Aiming at them. Aiming at their wives. Aiming at their children. Same with deacons. Take heed. The Ephesian pastors were to watch their own lives spiritually. That's what he's talking about. This is what Paul commanded Timothy. Take heed unto yourself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. That's why, that's why the enemy loves to stumble a shepherd and then make sure that it gets in the newspaper. Oh, this guy was a wonderful so-called pro-life person or pro-family person. And look the way he fell. They love it. They love to delight on fallen elders. They're preaching and preserving God's truth and one's Spiritual health is essential for a Christ-honoring ministry. Essential. Not just somebody who's, you know, read a little more of the Bible than I have and, and read a few books on theology. You can find them dime a dozen. God qualifies men and there are certain things about them that go way beyond their knowledge of theology. Now, in our last few moments, we want to consider this idea of paying attention to yourself and then to the flock. Who is the flock? Very often, we take for granted what that means. But in this context, it was the Ephesian congregation. But this is a command that reaches down through the centuries To every elder. God's given you a flock. You need to know that flock. 
And you need to watch yourself and that flock. That's what we'll spend the rest of our time on. The flock, as I said, in this context is the Ephesian congregation. It's a church. Now, what is a church? I'm going to read to you from our confession, that sadly too often neglected document. Let me urge you to read it regularly. Regularly. It's not inspired. It's not infallible. But it is a good expression of the doctrine found in the scriptures. Now, paragraph 2 of chapter 26 says, All persons throughout the world professing the faith of the gospel and obedience unto God by Christ according unto it, not destroying their own profession by any errors, averting the foundation, that's generally doctrinal errors, or unholiness of conversation, that means a known wicked life of unrepentant sin. So all persons throughout the world professing the faith of the gospel and obedience unto God by Christ according unto it, according to the gospel, not destroying their own profession, self-destructive people, not destroying their own profession with bad doctrine or unholy living. They are then and may be called visible saints. In other words, those set apart by God for God. And of such ought all particular congregations to be constituted. A church is a gathering of God's blood-bought people regenerated by the Holy Spirit. People anywhere and everywhere that are so bought of Christ, repentant of their sins, born of God's Spirit, should be members of a local church. The church, other well, people in our day, the minute you just say the church, it's like, Argh! it's beautiful to Christ. He loves the churches. He bought them. So, a true church is made up of people who don't just talk religion, but who have been born again, manifested by repentance of sin, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore united to him. A church should be made up of those people. That's what a church is. It's God's blood-bought people. That's what Paul here tells the Ephesian elders. It's his church. It's his living body. Secondly, there are no perfect churches in this world. That's what paragraph 3 tells us. There aren't any perfect elders, and there sure aren't any perfect churches. Not in this world. The purest churches, says paragraph 3, the purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error. And some have 
so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, Christ always hath had and ever shall have a kingdom in this world. This is part of his kingdom, the regenerate people of God. We should be living like citizens of the kingdom. How do we do that? If we're born of God's spirit, we have faith in him. If we've repented of our sins, then we'll have a life of repenting of our sins, trusting Christ to cleanse us, and growing in the faith as we walk with him. That's the purpose of the church. And if Satan can't have people's souls, he'll do everything he can to ruin and destroy anything that looks like a testimony of the grace of God. You're to hear, H-E-A-R, hear, H-E-R-E, how to walk with Jesus. Not only how to be converted, but you should hear how your life should look at your house if you're professing to be a Christian. More on that uh, later, not today. But there aren't any perfect churches. However, God is always going to have his Uh, testimony on this planet. He's always going to have it. But it is to be in the churches. You don't love the church. You don't love what Christ loves. That's what he gave his life to bring into existence. Not perfect. Just like your family is not perfect. I don't care how strongly you reform the family. Not going to be perfect. Thirdly, Christ is the only head of his churches. Paragraph four. It says the Lord Jesus is the definite article. The, not a indefinite article. The head of the church in whom by the appointment of the father, all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. In any sense. In any sense is he the head of the church. Not. But is that Antichrist, that man of sin, and son of perdition that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Without going into the pluses and minuses of this particular paragraph, there's one point you don't want to miss. Pastor Clarence and I were not the head of this church. Pastor Stephen and I were not the head of this church. Leroy Shelton was not the head of this church. Charles Spurgeon was not the head of his church. And we could go down the list. One is the head of the church. 
And that is the living Jesus Christ. That's it. There is no contest. Contest. There is a, and there are no contenders. Period. Jesus is the head of the church. Now that's important. <clears throat> he is the head of the church. Notice that he <clears throat> that is the head of the church. Because, uh, he's been appointed that by the Father. And all power for the calling. And the institution. And the order. And the government of the church. Is invested in a supreme manner. In other words. It's all in Christ. This is his blood-bought church, and he rules it. So everybody here needs to say, how do you want me to live? How do you want me to be a man? How do you want me to be a woman? How do you want me to marry? Who should I marry? How do you want me to live in your church? How should I have a relationship with the pastors or my fellow members or other people that profess to be Christians. How do you want me to live? Are you asking that question? Are you answering it from the scriptures? You need to answer that in your own heart before God. We're living in a day when we need biblical, spirit-filled churches on fire by the power of the Holy Spirit, a love for Christ, a love for His Word, a love for His people, a love for the church He put you in. Love, not toleration. And that brings glory to the head because that's what the head wants. Number five, Christ, the head of the church, saves his people and gathers them into local congregations. This paragraph, uh, this is heading number four, but it's paragraph number five. In the execution of this power, wherewith he, Christ, is so entrusted, the Lord Jesus calleth out of the world unto himself through the ministry of his word by the Spirit, those that are given unto him by his Father, that they may walk before him in all ways of obedience, which he prescribeth to them in his word. That's why pastors have to be faithful to the word. That's why they have to study their eyes out and read and pray and ask the Lord, am I getting this right? Do I understand this? I mean, down through the ages, people have disagreed about this. What do I say to your people? You don't just spin it the way you want to. Why? Because we're going to give account to the head of the church in the day of judgment. Jesus gathers them. This is what a church is. It's not just a place where I go and hang out with my friends. Young people, it's not just a place where you go, well, you know, I've got a few friends there. I can go and sit and talk with them for about this, that, and the other. You can. That's certainly okay. It's wonderful to have friends. Bible talks about that. But that's not why you come. Well, you know, they got big families down there. So we got a big family. So we want to go there. Wrong reason. I'm going there because I believe the word of Jesus Christ, my Lord, 
is being preached faithfully there. Period. Because my soul and the way I live in this world is directly tied to that. This is what Jesus died to bring into existence to nurture his children and edify them and make them like him. (laughs) Like it says, to walk in all the ways of obedience which he prescribeth to them in his word. Thus, those thus called, he commanded to walk together in particular societies or churches. This is your society. (laughs) What for? Their mutual edification. What does edification mean here? Being made more like Christ. Being built up in the faith. Need to build up. I'm wrestling. I'm struggling with assurance. I'm struggling with how to handle my marriage. I'm struggling with who should I marry? Where do I go to school? I'm struggling with this is going on at work. What do I do? How do I handle this? We should be learning that here. You should be learning how to walk like a Christian. To obey Christ, whatever the cost. If you're not getting that there, here, you should go somewhere where that will happen for you. And I'm not being smart, Alec. I'm not being hateful. I'm I'm just saying plain and simple. You're not here, quote, for the people as such. You're here for the person of Christ. To know him, to love him, to grow in him, to mature in him. Well, this will be our last point. Didn't get to the one that I was driving for, but that's okay. We'll get there in the part three. The members of a biblical congregation. Who should be the members? Well, they they took this seriously. This is paragraph six. I urge you, by the way, to read the minister's self-watch. We published this. The minister's self-watch. It's based on that wonderful verse that Paul gave to Timothy. You know, watch yourself so that you will save yourself and those who are hearing you. Stay in the truth. Stay in the doctrine. This is really, really helpful. It's not just for preachers. You need to understand what preachers should be thinking so that they can be properly encouraged and even corrected if necessary. Well, paragraph six says, the members of these churches are saints by calling. A saint, every Christian is a saint. Every Christian is a saint. That means a set-apart one. God has set you apart by the power of His Holy Spirit, the truth of His Word, opened your eyes and brought you into union with the Lord Jesus Christ. You have been set apart for Jesus. If He opens your heart, you can just praise Him every single day. Thank you. Thank you for setting me apart to serve you. How do I do that today? As a child, as a husband, as a wife, as a father, as a mother, as as a boss in the workplace. How do I do that? It's in the scriptures. If not, I can tell you, you're absorbing the words of men instead of the words of God for how you live. 
There aren't any other options. And many of the words of men are words of devils. So, these are saints by calling, visibly manifesting and evidencing in and by their profession and walking. Not just their profession, but their profession and walking. The lives that they live should be saying, Jesus Christ poured out his amazing grace on me. He saved me. I'm weak. I'm feeble. I get up in the morning. I take two steps and I fall on my face. But I look to the cross and I get up and I keep going. I'm going after Christ. I'm running for holiness. I'm running for purity. I'm running to bring glory to my Savior. I want people to look and say, what a fool this guy was. Man, what happened to him? Jesus got him. Set him apart. Filled him with the Spirit. Started teaching him his word. Man, his life changed. Lastly, it says, their obedience unto the call of Christ and do willingly consent. You hear that word? You can, make your, you can make your children do certain things, right? But they don't like it. And in their heart, they're not doing it willingly. They're doing it because, oh, he might take away the card keys. Or he might keep me from going to be with my friends this afternoon. Or, you know, whatever. That thing that becomes a punishment to you that you're so desperately wanting to do. No, but this is not about like, well, if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen. This is, oh, I love Christ. I want to do what he wants me to do. I do it willingly. Wait, I, mean to, I need to deny myself in this? Well, if, if the scriptures are true, then I know that there will be some joy in magnifying Christ by doing this or by stopping that. I want my life to say, Jesus loves me. This I know for his Bible tells me so and I want to walk in it it's a life friends and they they come together according to the appointment of Christ giving up themselves to the Lord and one to another by the will of God in professed subjection to the ordinances of the gospel that's like music to me does that sound like the chains of legalism to you It sounds like a beautiful song to serve Jesus. He's appointed us as his saints to bring him glory. And we don't do it because we can work ourselves up. We do it by faith in him, trusting him and communing with him. Well, we're going to stop there. But I was simply closed by saying Paul was working on the Ephesian elders and telling them that they needed to feed the flock. And it's for these reasons. Our confession tells you what that flock is. And it brings Christ glory. Not because, well, I've beaten myself enough. I've called myself a miserable worm enough. I was in a church where... (laughs) One of the men said, well, I heard this great preacher, man. He just said, y'all are all nothing but a, a bucket of warm spit. Hmm. 
Well, that, that may make some of you feel better. Not sure why. But the thing is, you're set apart by Christ to walk with him and to be made like him in a church. That's why Paul is talking to those elders. Preach the truth. Don't back down. Wear yourself out with it, but do it. And then he prayed with them. Amen. And we'll look forward, God willing, to part three. Let's pray. O Christ, we love thee. We love thy church. O Lord, we love, I pray that we love our, thy church. Lord, if there are those here who don't love thy church, love thy church. Oh, open up their hearts. Fill them with thy spirit. Pour out thy wonderful love. May the spirit of God pour out the love of God in their hearts so that they just love Christ and his church. Help us, O oh Lord. We're weak and feeble. Not one of us is perfect, but the day is coming when we will be like Christ. Help us to grow in that glorious life by the power of thy spirit, by the light of thy word. And may it all be to thy everlasting glory and the good of thy people. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would please stand with me, we will be done. <clears throat> With this portion of our day. <clears throat> now the God of patience and consolation. Grant you to be like minded. One toward another. According to Christ Jesus. That ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. For those of you that are staying today for our Q&A, we will proceed to lunch quickly.